In partnership with 2SER 107.3, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is a weekly program about the media featuring some of Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Hello across the Community Radio Network and here on 2SCR, it's Fourth Estate, the panel show on media and journalism current affairs. I'm Michael Koziol, and our very special panel this week, the presenter of the ABC's PM program and Twitter's master of the universe, Mark Colvin, <laughs> Guardian reporter and unashamed Gold Coast girl, Bridie Shabor, <laughs> the associate editor of New Matilda and Carl Sanderland's number one fan, Adam Brereton, <laughs> and on the phone from Coffs Harbour, I believe, the Australian's truth columnist, uh, and resident troublemaker James Jeffrey. Hello, everyone. Hello. To a subject we've spoken about before on the program, Peter Grester is an Australian journalist. He was working in Egypt for the Al Jazeera television network, covering events over there when he was arrested in Cairo, along with a handful of others, in December. Uh, after being held in solitary confinement for a time, he was accused, along with others, of falsifying news and tarnishing Egypt's reputation. Mark Colvin, uh, you've been following this case quite closely on the ABC's PM program. Uh, what's the latest? Where are things up to? Over there? Well, Peter, Peter is a friend of mine. I should declare that right up the front. And uh, so I have been following it more than uh, closely, if you like, uh, because I've I've been you know talking to the family pretty regularly on and off air, and uh, I, I'm you know trying every way I know to keep the story alive in people's minds on social media and so on and and I'm pleased to say that there is now a pretty wide understanding of it but it doesn't seem to have done much good what you've got what we're up against is a regime which seems to be impervious to any form of pressure and the difficulty is that in my analysis of what the Grester family is experiencing. The difficulty is is one of confusion more than anything else. They're getting mixed messages, so that they will get a, a message, a letter from the president of Egypt, uh, making very, very uh, optimistic noises, if you like, and they'll get the the uh, the embassy in Egypt will get a letter from the governor of of the prison or a letter from the prison's minister saying that uh, Peter should be allowed certain things and they get to the prison and the prison guards just refuse to allow that the system is sort of broken up in at almost every level and it's really difficult to read and so it came to the point last Monday where uh, everyone thought that there was a real chance of a breakthrough and at least they might be allowed out on bail because there was a court appearance on Monday. And instead, they they went through the motions. They were allowed for the first time to speak directly to the judges, which they did quite eloquently. And they the judges then retired, and everyone, the, all the journalists inside the courtroom, uh, thought that they were going to come out, the judges would come out and, and say, yes, you're granted bail, or possibly you're pardoned, or possibly you're, uh, you know, e- the, the the worst case scenario might be that they're found guilty, but they've already served 100 days in jail, and that would be not so bad. 
But uh, no, they were just sent straight back down again, and they won't be appearing again till Thursday. So just devastating, as you can imagine. Yeah, and Mark, uh, the Prime Minister Tony Abbott intervened by speaking directly to the Egyptian president. Has anything come out of that, as far as we can ascertain? Well, yes, the the the, the Egyptian president is has been very sympathetic, and the the various members of the Egyptian government have been very sympathetic. And the trade minister of Egypt gave an interview to the BBC a couple of weeks ago in which he was very sympathetic. But it isn't translating into action. And, and you know, I've there are some people have, thought, have said that the, the government's done too little on this. Uh, having seen what I have from inside the case to the extent that I have, I think that the, the the Foreign Affairs Department has been absolutely assiduous and the government has been pretty assiduous too in trying to work on this. I've seen cases in the past where Australian governments have been a, a bit less effective than this, but I think they've been pretty good. I think we're just up against a really difficult situation. And today, Monday, is 100 days in jail for Peter Grester and Mohammed Fahmi and Baha Mohammed, and they've done nothing except commit journalism. Mm-hmm. Bridie Jabour, I mean, the MEAA and Media Alliance is running a 30 Days of Press Freedom campaign. I mean, this just goes to show how important that sort of thing is, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's absolutely terrifying that anywhere in the world journalists can be locked up for doing their job and very, very bad for democracy, obviously. But I'm, I'm interested in this in the uh, the aspect of the Peter Grease case, and I wanted to ask Mark this. How do you feel about the media coverage as a whole of it in Australia? I think it's been... Very slow to get going. Yeah. I mean, it was. It's. It is incredibly disappointing, especially during the say first fifty or sixty days. We were still seeing that blanket coverage of Chappelle Corby, and uh, it was just so hard to get Peter Grester onto the front page. Really, I, I agree. At the beginning, I, I've I heard about it. I think towards the beginning, and mostly saw a lot of your coverage as well, and seeing things on social media. And I've been quite surprised at how slow um, media outlets have been to take this up and how and what little prominence the story has been given, although it's definitely gaining traction now. But why do you think that is? Because I've been, I've been puzzling over this myself and if he was a woman and attractive, would he be getting more attention? It's or? hard to get around that that uh, assumption, isn't it? Mm. It really is. I mean, the, and but by the way, you know, John Lyons at The Australian and Ruth Pollard at The Herald and our own Hayden Cooper, you know, our journalists have been going there and uh, so the the copy is there, the stories are there, but it's not getting onto the front page. I think uh, I think initially there may have been a sense that this was yes, he was an Australian journalist, but he was working for some weird Arab mm. network. You know, I don't think it people, has overtones of that, doesn't it? I think, you know? I, well, uh, actually, one of part of the case turns on the fact that Al Jazeera English is not the same as. Al Jazeera Arabic. Mm. Al Jazeera Arabic has been playing a fairly political role in Egypt. Uh, Al Jazeera English is mostly run by Australians, uh, Brits, Americans. It's run by people who worked at the BBC or ITN, Channel 4 News, uh, in Australian networks and work by those standards. And the editorial standards of Al Jazeera English are, you know, very similar to the ones that operate in most big Western media channels, whether you like that or not. But I think that might have been a bit of a 
problem for some people at the beginning. I just don't know. I think it's very disappointing that it took so long for the Peter Grester case to you know, gain prominence. Yeah. Adam Brereton. That doesn't... I mean, obviously I sympathise with everything you've said, but I think the interesting thing for me about this whole thing was that New Matilda tried to push a couple of years ago the case of Austin McKell, who was a, a freelancer, kind of independent journalist who was working in Egypt and was pinged for inciting a riot and ended up on house arrest for a long time. And, you know, we were constantly pushing... You know Bob Carr and trying to get stuff out of out of the the um, out of his department and you know get people in Egypt to respond and what have you and and we couldn't get any traction it didn't really feed up at all he got a couple of pieces run on the drum and I think the ABC ran ran with it a little bit but um, I think when he eventually you know got out I think now he's in Ecuador or something like that there was a bit of coverage but yeah I think it's like I mean look, thank God he was with Al Jazeera English and not one of these freelancers who's you know, on their own or having to work with stringers or that kind of thing who are, you know, um, being sent into into a fairly you know, tumultuous region without a lot of support. So I think the fact that he is from a reasonably large organisation and can and is an Australian and can attract that kind of level of support is really heartening. We might come back to a point that Adam raised. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to see a story that we circulated earlier uh, that had some interesting quotes in it from some media professors and analysts, one over at Sydney University, Richard Stanton. Um arguing that, you know, it's a more dangerous time than ever, really, for journalists because so few are attached to, or well, fewer are attached to big-name media corporations like Al Jazeera or a big newspaper. They're going in as freelance. Do you, I mean, do you agree it's, yeah. it's a more dangerous time than ever we ran to be a, a journalist? We ran a piece um, by Antonio Castillo, who is a former AFP journo who works down at RMIT University now, about, I mean, he went to Turkey and then crossed the border thank god he had a, an academic contact and crossed the border into syria and wrote this piece for us about stringers on the on the border and how difficult mm-hmm. it was which i found really interesting you know just to get access like um for a lot of indie journalists who kind of like take out a big loan or something like that don't have a the backing of a big organization and then really risk it all like risk getting in risk having to pay the money and then like maybe they don't have a story to sell at the end of it like that's really tough um and increasingly um you know, like people are wanting to go over and do that kind of foreign foreign policy journalism or foreign uh, reporting um, off their own bats, you know, because they can't get media jobs in Australia. Like young reporters want to kind of go and have the adventure and hope to import those skills back in to kind of leverage a media job back in Australia or overseas. But it's incredibly dangerous. There's a piece in Foreign Policy that I just read yesterday uh, about those people. And I don't think that I can remember any time, any war which has been as dangerous as that. And one reason is that now journalists are not just fair game. They are active targets for kidnapping. If you go into Syria now, you're very, very likely to be kidnapped. The only people who are going in are either people who are crazy uh, and, you know, very... Uh, very much just as you described, but not really prepared, yeah. not really understanding uh, what's going on. And you, if you do that, you put yourself at enormous risk. Or you go in with a big network or a big newspaper or whatever with heavy protection. Yeah, and that's like got something all like Robert Fisk of, or something like that is obviously in a much different position. Well, Fisk, I think Fisk has been going in with the regime, mm. which is another story and that's quite odd in itself but um, we're talking about these people who go in particularly in from Turkey Mm. into that no man's land and basically um, ISIS 
that Al-Qaeda now controls very large parts of that and are, are a lot of what are essentially Al-Qaeda kidnappings. Yeah. And a lot of people have been killed before before they're rescued. I often wonder as well whether or not part of the reason why journalists are targeted so much now is because the war is also fought through a media vector as well. I mean, if you look yeah. at the kind of way that... Um, journalists uh, interact with you know Israel Palestine or something like that, and the kind of disinformation and misinformation from both sides. Um, you know, someone even like Ant Lowenstein, you know, who's a New Matilda contributor, like still you know runs into trouble when he goes over there and has to kind of you know take care of himself and that kind of thing. And I, I often wonder whether or not um, it's part of a deliberate strategy to say, look, okay, let's wipe out the journalists and and stop yeah. um, sympathy for for, you know, victims or, or stop disinformation getting out there or whatever. Yeah. I, I just think it's interesting that the allure is still so powerful, though, you know, um, to to work in this field, to still make a name for yourself in journalism and that people are undertaking these tasks that are just becoming increasingly lunatic. But good on them, obviously. A war zone myself. Uh, Mark's had plenty of experience there. I thought it was mad enough... Years ago, during the Iraq War, and my then colleague Peter Wilson, he and um, our photographer John Fetter, they didn't want to be embedded, and they, they thought they'd just uh, they'd just make their own way, and they got their hands on a, a, a rental Pajero and just drove over the border into Iraq, and I think they they got about two days into their adventure before they were captured, and the next thing we knew, they were in the um, they were locked up in the. Uh, was at the Palestine Hotel in Baghdad and then the Americans shelled the hotel um, and some Reuters guys were, were killed but you know, it, it, was com- it was completely mad and um, bearing what they did but then they had a, the backing of a big media organisation as well. Mm. That's right. Uh, well, to run in as a stringer. That's uh, I, I just can't fathom it. It's, it's changed so much. The, when I was on the road, which is a, a quite a long time ago, and I, and I was in you know, a few dangerous situations, but th- th- this is what's changed. That when I was a, f- a foreign correspondent, when I went in, for instance, during the Ethiopian War, uh, when I was in Iran, all kinds of places in Kurdistan, uh, you, you knew where you stood. And if you were on one side, you, you know, you chose to be behind one set of battle lines, and there yeah. was some some form of clarity. Now there is not only there is there no clarity, but at, at that time, you, there was the sense that you were not quite like the Red Cross, Red Crescent, uh, and therefore completely immune, but that you had that degree of protection, that journalists were not fair game. Then what changed historically, I think, what changed was the, the, the Balkans wars of the 1990s. At that point, I remember, because uh, I got quite ill sort of in the middle of all that, but I, what, I, what I remember was suddenly my colleagues were going into Bosnia yeah. and instead of going around in Land Rovers, which were called soft skins, they, you suddenly had to hire a, a hard skin car. You had to hire an armoured vehicle. And then it came to the decision as to whether you would hire a security person as well. And there were huge decisions about that because journalists don't carry guns as far as I'm concerned. And if you've got a security person, an armed security person with you, that 
blurs that line uh, yeah. and and puts you more into the, the condition of an armed combatant. All the lines blurred, but what was happening was that you were actually a target. You were no longer immune in any way. Serbian snipers would actually deliberately shoot at journalists from the hills around Sarajevo. All of that kind of thing was happening. And since then, it's just got worse and worse. And now journalists are, if anything, as I say, in northern Syria in particular, they're a prize. Mm. Very, very d- dangerous. Well, we're you going don't to find yourself hankering for the old days. No. <laughs> well, we're certainly going to keep uh, following the Peter Gresta case here on Fourth Estate, and we'll be following your reporting on it as well, Mark. You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Michael Coziel. With me today, Adam Barrett and Bridie Jabour, Mark Colvin, and on the phone, James Jeffrey. I thought it would be an opportunity for us to talk a little bit about the role of religion versus secularism in mainstream journalism. Um, There are critics on the right-hand side of the political spectrum, as we know, who say that parts of the media are decidedly anti-Catholic. They point to coverage and framing of debates around sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, for example, or reporting about the actions of people like Cardinal George Pell. Um, Jared Henderson, for example, makes this argument uh, about the ABC and about the Age newspaper in Melbourne in particular, um, which he regularly claims pursue an anti-Catholic line of reporting. Um, Others, meanwhile, simply argue that secular journalists don't pay much attention to religion or don't really understand it. Uh, Bridie Jabour, I mean, do you agree with that? What's your take on journalists and their attitude to religion, particularly, I guess, the monotheistic religions? Well, I I think a completely secular journalist is a very, very rare thing. In Australia, you usually don't grow up in a completely secular way. A lot of us are taken to Mass younger, a lot go to Catholic and Christian schools, and I think that a lot of journalists do have an understanding of the Bible and of religion, and I think it's certainly reported on very well in um, some quarters of Australian media. I think the Australian and the ABC especially report very well on religion, but it's definitely an interesting question, but I certainly don't think that the media is anti-Catholic, and I don't think that you can talk um, point to reporting on institutional child abuse that is just... Or like, there's just no no words for how awful it is. I don't think that you can say that's anti-Catholic. It happened. Mm. No, I mean, I suppose the, the argument but, there might but be that not it, only did it happen, it mm. happened across a whole lot of different religious and non-religious organisations. I mean, so I it, it, sorry, James. So I was going to say it's a little bit hard to report on that and not actually get around to mentioning the institution under whose auspices that happened. Well, exactly. But, but I mean, if the if the accusation is that the ABC is anti-Catholic, how how come we have uh, reported so much uh, child abuse in the Church of England? How much? How come on PM every night last week we were reporting the allegations about the Salvation Army, which are really really shocking, by the way? Um, uh, you know, it's not. It's not about anti-Catholicism, and it's not about any particular religion. In my view, the whole child abuse issue is not a, a religious issue at all. It's about what happened at a period when adults had far too much power over children. Mm. I mean, to broaden this out beyond that, I mean, is there enough coverage of religion and church-related affairs in Australia outside of this issue? I mean, Adam Barrison, you're the one regular Charlie Church that we know of on this panel. I mean, Charlie Church. You... <laughs> Yeah, I have, dist- I have the distinction of being of being a convert as well, so and a lefty, so that makes me probably one of a kind in this country. But I don't know. Look, I think the part of the problem with the way that religions reported more broadly is that 
a kind of the kind of left left liberal establishment that kind of forms a cultural establishment in Australia generally views religion as something that you can't be an expert in. You know, like the the idea that that um, you know back from the back from the Middle Ages that basically there was a kind of religion that particularly learned or you know like members of the clergy or monks practice like a higher type of religion, and then there was you know religion for the rest of us. Um, and and the idea of secularism came from this idea where the the lower type of religious functions was basically moved away out of the church. And now we basically all practice religion if we do in this particular way, like as a matter of personal choice and experience. So I think that it, you get you get to the point where um, when we tend to report on on religious matters, um, the idea that you might need some expertise in say theology to be able to do that well. Um, or to be able to comment on it, I think is pretty anathema to most people. Mm. Um, and, and I think that, to disagree with Mark, I think that you can see that inflecting the way that people are covering the institutional child abuse matters. Like, I've been in the Royal Commission covering that, and I, I really think, and I'll hopefully have a piece this week on ABC Religion about it, that the Commission was called um, a, as a response to the kind of... Um, Governance, the kind of kind of personhood the Catholic Church has in society, and the way that it tended to try and manage that um, very poorly, and I'll never apologise for it. I've been as scathing about people like George Pell as anyone has, but I really see the Commission as being a kind of response to the the, the what's called subsidiary structure of the Church, so decentralised, yeah. you know, which is in itself a theological matter. So I think that the issues are very deep, and that people are generally quite reticent to question what secularism actually means. Mm. Uh, James Jeffrey, I mean, you know, how do you cover something in a rigor, uh, you know, rigoristic, proper journalistic fashion uh, if you think it's sort of baseless or irrational or irrelevant? You know, could, how do you pay that due diligence? I don't know how you go about covering it. Then I think you should have some grounding in it. Um, it's a very difficult thing. And for, for, for me, it's uh, that I. I, I'm not religious. I sort of take the Julian Barnes approach. I don't believe in God, but I kind of miss him. Um, I don't know, that's such a curly one. I, that, uh, the whole idea of covering this child abuse thing, it just, uh, I, I just find it so horrifying. I don't, I honestly don't know how I would approach it. I think I there's, really there's, don't. there's some other issues that you can use to frame this issue. I think the child abuse thing is so grim and so dark that it tends to muddy up the way people think about the issue because everyone rightly so wants to first deal with you know victims like um there was actually a really good story uh at the end of last year do you remember there was that priest in melbourne who got excommunicated that catholic priest he got kicked out his name was um oh god reynolds i'm pretty sure his name was and um the reason he got kicked out was because he ran a, a mass that wasn't approved by the catholic church and a dog came along and ate one of the wafers and no, one, no one would have and the, so Barney Zwartz from The Age who is like the best religion reporter kind of working I think at least in the print media wrote this yeah. story and he included this line in it like oh but the, you know the, at least they didn't give the dog the cup as well and it was quite tongue in cheek um, and but basically as a result of reporting it I, I think at least um, my reading of the situation was that as a result of it being reported in this way and Zwartz including this particular sacrilege as part of colour, that report actually led to the excommunication of this priest and that um, I, I think that, um, or, or at least contributed to it in a pretty significant way. And I think that there's some real pitfalls there where where um, someone like Reynolds was you know, responding to a real need for excluded Catholics 
yeah. like couldn't keep the kind of quality control on board. Mm. But that could be interpreted as you arguing that you shouldn't joke about religion when you're reporting it, and and I would I would uh, resile against that. I would absolutely agree that you should take the piss. Yeah, for sure, no question. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but that's that's different. Dog, yeah, I know. Well, the, look, the <laughs> dogs. There. Well, how else is a dog's sins going to be forgiven? You know, if it can't take communion, but. <laughs> but Dogs have a lot of sins as well, so you can see it in their faces. <laughs> um, Bridie, I mean, just to round this off, do you agree with Adam's point from earlier that there's not really sort of sufficient bedrock of theological understanding among journalists in order to report properly on issues about religion in the church? I think that there, there can still be a lot of good reporting without that theological bedrock, but I, I, I'm going to be like very on the fence on this. On this, but I also think that it would it would be great if we had a few more journalists with like a real understanding and spend years studying it and then reporting on it. I think that it, that would really open up the reporting and give us something like true insight as well as the rigorous reporting that should be going on anyway. Well, let's turn now to um, the ABC's managing director Mark Scott, who last week presented a speech at the University of Melbourne. Uh, it received a lot of attention, particularly from the News Corporation papers, uh, in speculating about the future of the newspaper industry. He repeated some suggestions that the Fairfax newspapers may cease printing during the week, uh, while also maintaining that newspapers in general still set the news agenda. Bridie, you work in newspapers or online newspapers. Is he right on those points? And can they both be true at the same time? Can newspapers cease printing and still be as influential and set the agenda as he claims? Oh, I think there's a big transition period when that happens. And he was obviously referencing reports that Fairfax are moving in the not-too-distant future towards just being a weekly. That's a. I think that in a few years, online can certainly be as influential as newspapers are, but in Australia especially, the, it's quite depressing because the very few newspapers that we have, I think, do hold a lot of sway and do set the news agenda every day. And I think sometimes for worse rather than for better. Mm. Mark, I mean, he warned, of course, that, you know, were that to happen, news corporations' market share would edge up closer to, I think, above 80%. Would that be a problem? Look, I'm not. I haven't. I'm not absolutely convinced that it would. In the sense that it's uh, it's it, that would be its market share of dead tree newspapers. If everybody else is is reading online, then that isn't uh, the same problem. If you can still read the Sydney Morning Herald on your iPad, as I do every morning, then why is it less influential? I mean, basically, I get most of my news off Twitter now, and that sounds. That sounds, uh, you know, incredibly uh, ridiculous. But actually, I get most of it from links that that uh, you know by the by the end of an hour on Twitter when I wake up in the morning, I've read most of the morning newspapers. Yeah, um, and James Jeffrey, I mean, I think the Australians reporting uh, on this was, you know, Mark Scott. Um, says something good about News Corporation, I think was the, the headline or the angle they took on it. Um, I mean, what it, it's interesting, the focus that uh, I guess your newspaper has on Mark Scott's actions well, we're, we're and, and words, whatever he says. Personal relationships in our stories. So yes. Keep it going on that level. <laughs> I, will, I was going to ask you what was going on there. I mean, it's, it, there's a kind of co-accusation of obsession on both sides that's been flung back and forth over the last few weeks. Um, I mean, would you characterise... Uh, Mark Scott is obsessed with News Corp or vice versa? There's um, obsession. I'm not sure. There's certainly a strong and abiding interest. When that tips <laughs> over into obsession, I'm not really sure. But, yeah, we certainly, there's certainly a symbiotic relationship happening here. A symbiotic relationship. Um, well said. Adam Brereton. I, I just really think it's interesting the way that the 
the discussion about you know business models, the future of journalism, market share, you know all this kind of this kind of hard economic talk tends, and and even the discussion about the ABC, you know, um, taxpayer dollars and you know bias and all that kind of thing tends to obscure the way that I think the media is is not really like a separate business or economic actor in society, but actually forms part of the structure of just our day to day lives and the battle over media prominence and who gets to break the stories and who gets to access the politicians is is largely a political one i think and that you can see that absolutely by turnbull wanting to um open open that back up again and reduce those cross-media ownership laws unfortunately that's all we have time for on this episode of fourth estate you can listen back to it and all our episodes at fourthestate.org.au this program is produced here at 2SER in sydney and is distributed around the country on the community radio network a big thank you very much to adam brereton bridie jabour james jeffrey and mark colvin i'm michael Coziol. this has been my last time presenting this program as paul mcdermott once said There have been ecstatic highs and horrific lows, but I'm on medication now, so that's all levelled out. Kyle Lusikian is back in this chair next week when we bring you more stories from the world of media and journalism. Bye-bye.